You're tuned in to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus. Today I'm joined by botanist Adam Schneider from the Department of Integrative Biology. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Tesla. Yeah, my pleasure. So uh, botanist or plant systemicist, is that how you say it? Systematist. Systematist. It's like I can't even say it. Uh, systematist. So what is that? Tell me what that, <laughs> tell me what that is. Um, well, one of the big things that a plant syst- any systematist is interested in is where does diversity come from on Earth? And so obviously I'm interested in plants, uh, but there are animal systematists, fungi systematists. And a lot of our work is focused on evolution and diversification of a group. And part of that includes taxonomy, some of the you know, things that humans do to try to organize the, the amazing diversity that's in life. But we also think about bigger questions too, you know, diversification, when, where, how, why. Those are all great questions. When, even? Definitely when. Okay. <laughs> just, just want to throw that in there as well. And you're about to start your third year in, in IB, right? Yes. Yep. So congratulations on passing your qualifying exams. Yeah, thank you. It was, you know, a lot of people stress out about it, but I actually kind of enjoyed the, the process. Yeah. Well, don't tell too many people that. Oh. But and I'm not on the radio, am I? No. <laughs> <laughs> and you actually, uh, you told me you were able to take in some of the plants that you study. I even have one here in front of me. But you were able to take them into the exam and show them to the professors. Yeah, that was really cool. And it helped to break the ice a little bit, um, you know, to have something to look at and also to refer back to if, you know, if I wasn't sure on how to answer a question or at one point, they asked me to describe my study organism, and the plants I study are actually really weird. They're not like a plant that you might imagine. Although you can find them here on campus, even because we went and got one. Yeah, earlier. there's there's actually uh, some growing outside the building I work in, Valley Life Sciences Building, um, and around some of the other buildings on campus. But actually, most people mistake them for just flowers of the ivy that's growing around in and amongst these plants. Okay, and we're going to talk more about that. In a little bit, but first, why plants? What got you started in plants? Well, my interest in biology overall really stems from just a passion I have for the outdoors and spending time camping and you know exploring in nature. And when you go outside, what's the first thing you see? Well, it's usually not an animal, especially as a little kid. You're too noisy and you scare them away. <laughs> but the plants are there. They can't go anywhere. Um, and if you just start to look at them, uh, you start to see that there's there's really an amazing amount of diversity and and ecology, and you know, all of these big things that biologists are interested in, and just questions to explore. So the plants couldn't run away from you, and that played a part in Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Nice. And where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in Wisconsin. Okay. Are there plants there? there? There are plants in Wisconsin. Awesome. I mean, I don't know much about it, so I, I assume. Okay, yes, there are plants. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, Awesome. Okay. So you saw the plants everywhere and you studied plants as an undergraduate as well? Yeah. So I went to a smaller uh, university, University of Wisconsin, Eau Claire. And so they didn't really have their own botany major, uh, but I definitely tried to take as many plant classes as I, as I could. But it really wasn't until I came out here to California that I, I feel like I could really call myself a botanist. Just the amazing diversity that's around here and the, the ecosystems in California are just you know amazing. But somebody was calling you a botanist because they sent you overseas, right, to the Galapagos to study plants. Yeah. So actually, I did have the the privilege uh, once summer um, during my undergrad career to, to serve as a volunteer intern at the Charles Darwin Research Station, which is the main center of research in the Galapagos Islands. 
Uh, so I worked mostly indoors in one of their research museums, but I did get to go on a couple botanical field trips, and that was really cool. And Ecuador is just an amazing place in general, so I'm sure you had fun. It was, yeah. And, you know, because they don't ask many people to come and in, international people to come and volunteer, they really wanted us to stay as long as we could on our tourist visas. And so that meant, unfortunately, I couldn't explore all the other cool parts of Ecuador on the mainland, you know, the Amazon and the Andes and, and, all, and everything there. So I'd really love to go back and, of course, visit the Galapagos again. So if any Ecuadorian government officials are listening, we've got a candidate right, right here. <laughs> um, well, you worked indoors, but what, so what were you doing? You were still looking at plants, though, correct? Yeah. So I was in, like I said, in a research museum, uh, the herbarium down there. And um, I really did a lot of curatorial tasks. And those varied from identifying species that other people had collected to um, helping you know preserve them and curate them. Um, I also worked quite a bit with their with a database, their collections database, trying to trying to update some of the taxonomy and nomenclature and looking for different references that cite the, diff- the plants that I was working with. So we have an herbarium here as well. What's the difference between a botanical garden and an herbarium? So we actually have two herbaria here, which is what a lot of people don't, don't know. But the difference between that and the botanical gardens is that herbaria are plants that have been collected and will be preserved indefinitely. So as opposed to a botanical garden where you have live plants, generally the plants in the herbarium are, you know, have been cut and pressed and dried, um, although there are other ways of keeping plants. And, and just really quickly, because maybe not everyone's familiar with the nomenclature, we're switching between herbarium and herbaria. Can you just tell them why? Yeah, so herbaria is the plural uh, of herbarium. You know, us botanists like using Latin, and so that's just a Latinized plural. Okay, that's just good to know for everyone out there. And that's also different from sort of the the UCMP, the Museum of Paleontology. They also have plants in there, but those are preserved differently, correct? Right, yeah. And so the plants that you'd find in the UCMP are fossil plants, of course. And all of the plants that are up in the herbarium were living sometime in, you know, in re- in the recent past in human history. One of the cool things about that is that instead of going up and digging up a fossil, you basically can walk outside and see a plant that you want to collect and you make a collection and pressing. And then, you know, that can go into the museum. So what are the sorts of things that you can do with herbaria specimens and not just the specimens, but they also have photographs and they have other things there as well, right? Yeah. One of the most important parts of the herbarium isn't isn't just the, the specimen itself, but all of the data that goes along with it. And that might be geographical, you know, coordinates or field characters. So things that you might observe in the field that that won't be preserved, you know, maybe how tall the tree was or what plants were growing around it or colors, you know, oftentimes things can fade. And um, in terms of, of other uses, I'm always surprised at, at how many new and interesting things people use herbaria resources for. So some of the most basic ones are, you know, taxonomy, just trying to understand you know, which, what species limits are and what, you know, where a species grows. But people have really taken that, the the data there in so many different ways um, in addition to that. So, for example, there have been papers that look at changes in, in range, ranges of plants over, you know, the last 100 years to 200 years based on where they've been collected. Um, the spread of invasive species can be a really, you know, important thing that herbaria resources can be used for. Um, looking at at morphological differences between you know d- between populations and the species, there's really an, an you know an infinite 
amount of possibilities that that have yet to be tapped even. So you mentioned an invasive species. What Can you describe that to us? What is an invasive species? Yeah, so basically an invasive species is one that disrupts the normal ecological functioning of an area. Um, and generally this will be a species that hasn't traditionally been present in the area, but maybe was introduced there by humans, oftentimes unintentionally, but sometimes intentionally also. And they just do so well that they crowd out you know, other native species and really d- disrupt a lot of the ecological and biological processes that, that take place there. So in some cases, people might actually think that these invasive plants are beautiful or, you know, they might like them, but they don't realize what sort of impact they're having on the other plants in the area. Definitely. Many of them start out as, as horticultural plants that people, you know, put in their yards because they look pretty. But sometimes, you know, they might escape into the wild and just become so, you know, such a they do such a good job at surviving that they're crowding out everything else. And so it's kind of funny. Sometimes I'll be, you know, marveling at how pretty a plant looks, and then I'll learn that it's invasive, and then I just can't enjoy it the same way. And there are negative examples, too, because I remember in the South, there's that viney example that just, it's invasive, and it will just, like, overtake cars and houses um, in a matter of, like, days or weeks. Yeah, yeah, could zoo. Yeah, and actually, and that's, you know, that's one of the the biggest examples of, of an invasive species. Although some people have try, been trying to use that for biofuels, right? It grows so well, maybe we can make some energy out of it. But in the meantime, it's going to eat your house. So. Right, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, you're listening to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the talk show where I where we interview graduate students about their work here at UC Berkeley. Today, I'm joined by plant systematist Adam Schneider from the Department of Integrated Biology. And uh, why don't we talk a little bit about some of your current work? I know we talked about this plant that is your study species. What's the name of it again? So the genus is called Orobanki. Um, That's a good name. It's kind of like Ouroboros, which I like. Orobanki. Okay. Yeah. And the the common name is actually broomrape. <laughs> that, that, that's less pleasant. <laughs> less pleasant. Why? Do you know why they called it that by any chance? Yeah. So there's there's a group of plants... We were talking about invasive species earlier. One great example here in California is French broom. Um, and so in Europe, there's a species that that relies very heavily on the broom um, and actually parasitizes it. So it's called broom rape. Wow. Who named that? Was it the French? <laughs> we don't know. I don't uh, know. Yeah. But so parasitizing, that's a, that's a primary characteristic of this species, correct? Yeah. So most people think of plants as, you know, getting their energy from the sun and, you know, some sort of very idealistic, you know, harmony with nature kind of thing. Well, plants have found other ways to survive too. And for some plants, that means forming connections with other plants and sapping all of their sugars and you know nutrients and and water so literally kind of stealing their energy yes them. they're raping them of their energy <laughs> nice and so that's why it doesn't have any roots as you mentioned and hardly any leaves or anything yeah so if you imagine anything that you might any distinguishing features you might think of a plant right they're green they have leaves they have roots you know these plants have almost none of these features they're they're not green they've lost the ability to produce chlorophyll. They don't have roots because once they germinate, they immediately form this connection with the host plant, and then that's not needed. They spend most of their life cycle underground. Um, they only You only see them when they're sending up a, a flower uh, inflorescence. And here in California, at least your species, they send that flower up amidst the ivy, correct? Yeah, so 
Well, there's there's one species that's growing that grows in English ivy, and that one's actually not native to California. Uh, most of the California native species, well, they grow in a variety of environments, but oftentimes they'll grow on woody shrubs. So what's a woody shrub? Can you give us an example? Yeah, so one that comes to mind is um, elderberries, Sambucus. There's a one species called Orbanki velicola that lives on on them, kind of in the in the Central Valley regions. There's a another species that actually isn't described yet that lives on a a shrub called lizard tail that grows in in coastal areas. Is that some description you're going to be doing? Is that why you mentioned that? Well, possibly me, but one of my collaborators is is really spearheading some of that effort, Allison Caldwell. So, no, I get this image of you just sort of trekking through the golden hills of California, picking wildflowers or picking these strange flowers. And, and you know, that's that's your research. Is that is that true? That's pretty idealistic. Yeah, well, that's certainly one of the parts of my research that I like the most. Of course, you know, you, you have to be careful when you're when you're collecting things that you're not you know, accidentally harvesting something that's endangered or, you know, there's a lot of things that I would caution maybe people that are interested in in botany, you know, to not just pick anything you see and, you know, pictures are great and, you know, just take photos and. Yeah, and, no, this is such. sampling for research. Right, yeah. right. But, but yeah, just you go, go out to some really cool places. Um, you know, the, a few months ago I was up in um, Lake and Napa counties doing some collecting on, on a different project actually. And, you know, just to see these, you know, these, these green hillsides and, and then you, you know, it, I can't think of anything that I'd rather spend my time doing. Well, that's a good deal then for you, Adam. Oh, so what's this other side project you mentioned? Yeah, so I'm working with a couple of other grad students from my lab and then also a, a disease ecologist to try to study um, some wild flax. There's a, a genus of wild flax that grows in California um, that people don't really know a lot about the evolutionary relationships in this group. But it has been a really interesting focal point for ecological studies uh, both in terms of disease ecology and also because they've e- evolved to some very, very harsh soil conditions. And flax, uh, for the audience, that that's a, I don't want to call it an agricultural plant. Is that the correct term? Or Yeah, yeah. So there's there's a closely related, a couple closely related species that, that are very important agriculturally. And sometimes you'll actually see some of those in California. They've, you know, they're not native here, but they've been introduced and, and they're not quite at the invasive stage yet. So you mentioned harsh soils. I'm sensing sort of a theme here with plants that have pretty unique uh, living conditions. Is that is that something that you're interested in? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think one thing that's just so cool about you know nature and and biology is that we try to put things into these really neat categories, but you know evolution happens, right? It doesn't always follow the rules. It, there's no rule that says plants have to be photosynthetic. There's no rule that says you know things can only live in nice areas. And sometimes the most interesting things biologically are, are what happens when, when plants get you know pushed to these extremes and trying to do whatever it takes to survive. And, and speaking of extremes, I know you mentioned you recently had a paper published on climate change. Yeah, so this was a collaborative effort. Um, I was, I think, the third author out of several. And we did a paper looking at the responses that California plants and animals have had to climate change in the last hundred years. So we've really reached the point where climate change isn't some hypothetical future event, right? We've, we can see that rainfall patterns are changing, the climate's warming, but we actually have been also been able to see animals and plants responding to those changes. And the, the focus of this paper was more on range shifts. So are things moving you know, upslope or downslope? Are things 
moving north or south, and and kind of how does that how is that affected by their biology and natural natural history? Do you have like a one sentence punchline from that you could give us? Yeah, so not everything's changing in the same way. And is that is that surprising? Should it be surprising? Well, it's it's really easy for us to think about. Oh, things are generally getting warmer, so you know, plants are generally going to be growing further north than they have been. And that might be true in a broad sense, but you know, we have to remember that temperature isn't the only thing that limits plant growth. In California, precipitation is a really important factor. And Especially this year. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And and as far as animals are concerned, you know, some animals might be more reliant on plants for food or other animals might be reliant on certain veg you know, certain habitat types. And so even though climate is is changing in a certain way, that's not going to affect everything the same. And I think we really need to keep that in mind when we're try- when we're using these broad brush predictions and trying to say how is it going to affect this animal? How is it going to affect this plant? So where where do you see yourself going? Are you plants for life? You must be. <laughs> yeah, I, I I definitely see myself always working with plants and always loving plants. But you know, certainly that doesn't mean that the the questions that we ask are are limited just to plants. You know, things like like parasitism. You know, that's something that that all an, you know animals, plants, fungi, all engage in. So do you do you want to stay in academia? Um, you know, I I'm not I'm not totally sure at this point. You know, we'll see where things go. I think I'd love to to work at a a university where I would have a, a lar- I could have a large role teaching um and and mentoring other students just helping get other people passionate about about the outdoors, about biology, about you know about nature, observation. Yeah, no, those are all great things. Um and I it's refreshing to hear someone who doesn't doesn't absolutely know the answer <laughs> to that question. If you are just tuning in, you're listening to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and we're at The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak with graduate students about their work today. I'm speaking with botanist Adam Schneider and, uh, yeah, plants and climate change and rain shifts. And why California? Did you pick, I mean, did you pick California plants just because you came to Berkeley or was that, was that already in your mind? Well, actually, I really didn't know hardly anything about the California flora before moving here. So, you know, just a couple of years ago, it was all a mystery to me. But in fact, California has one of the most botanically interesting places on Earth. Um, it's a you know biodiversity hotspot. And there are several hypotheses as to why that's the case. But definitely, whatever it is, it probably has to do with the you know diverse topography in the state. And you know, we've got mountains, we've got plains, desert. And then also the the Mediterranean climate, kind of the the moderate temperatures and the the interesting you know rainfall distributions that we have in the state. So when you say biodiversity hotspot, what are the some of the types of environments you can find here in California that are unique to this area? The first one that comes to mind is probably just the the, the big redwood forest, right? Sequoia, um, sempervirens is you know the the coastal redwood, and that's found only in California. Um, and you know there are other examples of California endemic species that really dominate their ecosystem. But I think it's a large portion, again, like I said, it's just, it's just the diversity, right? I mean, you might be able to find deserts in other places, but not, you know, nowhere where you can find, you know, a, a high desert right next to a, you know, a low desert next to a mountain range, you know, all within just a few minutes drive. Yeah, although one place you might be able to see that a little bit is up at the UC Botanical Gardens because they do a great job of representing a lot of different California environments in one little area, correct? They do, definitely. And there's also the a botanical garden up at Tilden Regional Park that's that's free. 
Um, and and they, they also focus on California plants. And that's a great place for anyone interested to, to explore. Besides the botanical gardens in the herbaria, what are some of the other resources in the Bay Area or even further out that California residents can enjoy? Yeah, so within the Bay Area, there's really a great uh, diversity of regional parks and open spaces. I spent some time um, earlier this summer doing some research at, at the Marin County Open Space Preserves. And, you know, it's just amazing. You you start out in the city and you can just drive a short ways and, you know, it, it just feels like you're, you know, you can imagine what California might have been like, you know, 300 years ago, 400 years ago. And I know that UC has an extensive reserve system. Yeah, across the state there are UC reserves. I think much of it's it's open only to people doing research there. But there are certainly other, you know, public public lands across the state. One of the coolest things is land that's owned by the, the BLM, Bureau of Land Management. And, you know, that's it's like one of those kinds of places where you can, you know, you can camp where you want and you just, you know, you can just go exploring and you oh, really have that cool. freedom. Yeah, no, that's really nice. Oh, California, right? So f- besides climate change, what do you think some of the really important issues are right now in not necessarily for the public, maybe for the public and and for human life and the earth, but also within science and uh, within botany as a field. Oh, that's that a, a big, that's question. A big question. <laughs> Sorry. I think what, well, one thing that certainly comes to mind that it ties into climate change is just this idea of conservation, right? We have the plants and animals and, and biodiversity that we have today have been accrued over millions and millions of years, and a lot of those processes for generating that biodiversity are really slow. But what we're seeing nowadays is a lot of you know species being pushed to extinction for many different reasons. Um, you know, there's not kind of any one thing that that's causing it all. But but I think that's something that we really have to be be cognizant of is how human you know impacts are affecting all of this biodiversity. That's really a you know it can tell us not only about the processes of evolution, but you know give us a, a kind of a history, a natural history of of Earth. Okay, so yeah, no conservation, and you say you don't know what the cause is, uh, one overarching cause, but you did say the word humans, so that, that that might be related to it. Yeah, in in many ways. Yeah. So outside of conservation, uh, how how have some of the modern technologies really impacted botany? I know that at least, at least in my field of biology, genetics has become is just skyrocketed in terms of methodology. Yeah, and many I think many of the same tools that that you may be familiar with have have been being used by systematists in their work to try to you know classify and understand this biodiversity, um, and that's been really really exciting. You know, for for a long time, um, we've kind of been limited to you know morphological traits, and that you know that can take a lot of effort to to catalog those traits. And in a group like I study, where there's a lot of morphological reduction, you might not be able to you know find enough enough differences to, to show that something's maybe a different species or, or whatever. But yeah, now with all this, this molecular data, you know, DNA sequencing has become incredibly cheap to the point at which I'm sure, you know, within a, within a decade, getting whole genomes of things will be, you know, very easy. I mean, of course, people already do that, but at, at the scale necessary for, you know, a, a systematics taxonomic study. And that's really exciting. You know, we're answering questions that people, you know, hadn't even thought to ask before. But I, I do think that one one thing people have to be careful of is not to lose sight that we're studying organisms, right? And there's a lot you can understand about an organism without thinking about the genes. Also, I've heard that maybe in plants in particular, but not just plants, that maybe the genetics doesn't necessarily make it easier in every case. Yeah, 
and you know that's a blessing and a curse, right? You so you think it's going to answer all of your questions, but then when you start to do the analyses and look into it, it turns out to just generate far more questions and complexity than you you know had had thought. And I think that's one of the really interesting things about science, and one of the exciting things about science is that there's always you know always things to grapple with. And you know, actually, I wish I wish more people had that perception of science as one of discovery and questioning and and experimentation instead of just a you know a list of a- answers about the natural world. Yeah, although I don't know, I don't want to say anything bad about my my high school experience in particular, but you know, some biology classes can be pretty much question and answer. So yeah, getting that exploration and that creativity into the process is really important, I think. I agree. And once people become excited about the questions and, you know, and the observation and discovery, you know, then they'll understand the importance of of knowing these facts, right? Because if you're curious as to, you know, why an animal is is living a certain way or, or, you know, is choosing a certain habitat, you'll start with that question and then you say, well, I wonder what other people have studied about it, you know, and then you might start learning ecological concepts and, and, and you might have to learn different parts of, you know, different adaptations that the animal has, morphology, anatomy, physiology. And, and I think if it starts from an excitement and discovery oriented place, people can connect with science, even if they don't become scientists. So for those excited high schoolers or undergraduate students, what would you recommend in terms of getting into botany as a career? Well, my first thought would be just to get outside. But that's not a career. <laughs> we all wish it was. I mean, for some people, for you and your flax or Right. It's it's people. not, but I think it's I think you can you can learn a lot by looking at the natural world and start to think about what you want to really do. You know, not everyone is going to be a botanist. Um but then yeah, at the, at that point I would definitely recommend, you know, there's a lot of different ways to volunteer. You can volunteer with a herbarium, you can volunteer with you know, botanical gardens or parks. Yeah, no. And getting outside, definitely, especially here in Berkeley, where, I mean, there's just tons of different plants. I know a lot of them are garden-based plants, but even just seeing the wide variety of shapes and sizes and colors. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when I was younger, I spent a lot of time doing um, restoration, right, conservation efforts and helping to, you know, remove invasive species in places or, or, or plant new seeds. And that was really cool. You know, I got to learn kind of what was in my what was growing in my backyard, and and you also form this connection and appreciation with with the land that I think is important, regardless of what career or profession you end up in. I definitely know there are a few, definitely more than a few organizations in the Bay. I think Urban Forest is one. People who go out and plant trees, or they work in Golden Gate Park or the other parks, as you said, removing invasive species and helping. The yeah, plants. yeah. Park agencies will have you know work days and stuff. Uh, the California Native Plant Society is a great way to you know way to plug in. They have chapters all across the state. Outside California, there's other native plant groups, and you know, and they do a lot of really really good stuff. So that's a, that's going to about do it for us. Do you have any last words for the audience? Get outside. <laughs> Get outside. You're not the first to say that, actually. It's it's a theme that we've had here and a really great theme, and I hope people really take it to heart because this is California. For, for goodness sake, this is California. It's so beautiful all year round. There's no reason not to be outside. Absolutely. Anything you want to do, you can find a place to do it here. Yeah. Um, ain't that the truth? This, this is going to do it for another episode of The Graduates here on 90.7 FM KLX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson. I've been joined today by botanist Adam Schneider in the Department of Integrated Biology. Thank you again, Adam. Thank you so much for having me, Tesla. Anytime. Uh, anytime. We really enjoyed hearing about plants and, and uh, or a banky. Yes. Or a banky. Yeah, I got it. And uh, all the other great things that you do. And get outside. 
And uh, yeah, that's it for the graduates. Remember, you can listen to past episodes online. Just look for the CalEx podcast of The Graduates or check it out on iTunes. We'll be back two weeks from today with another episode of The Graduates. Until then, stay tuned. You're listening to 90.7 FM at KALX Berkeley.